The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to follow in your Bible as I read from two different passages. First, familiar, very familiar, Isaiah 53. Just the first four verses of this wonderful prophetic chapter, one that so perfectly pictures Christ in His passion. And then I'm going to read also from the main text of John 11. First, Isaiah 53. I'll read verses 1 through 4. Listen to God's Word. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. And then this very familiar passage as well. In John 11, you probably know this true story. It was near the end of Jesus' ministry, not too long before the cross, that he experienced this incident where his friend Lazarus from Bethany died while Jesus was absent. Jesus delayed in coming and then arrived there and was greeted by the two sisters of Lazarus, first Martha, with whom he had the very significant discussion of verse 25, I am the resurrection And the life, he who believes on me will live even though he dies. And then when Martha went back to the house, Mary, the other sister, came out. I'm going to pick it up there at verse 32 and just read through verse 37. Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man? From dying. And this is the Word of God. Recently, my wife and I bought a piece of furniture, one of those kind of finds you're almost amazed uh, to discover in a place that sold used furniture. It's an antique 
secretary-type desk with a slant top that folds out. My wife wanted a small desk, and it was perfect. And we were able to obtain it, and we got this thing. It probably stands on me about as high as this pulpit and maybe somewhat wider, about three feet wide. And I didn't have to load it in my car. There were two kind men at the store who put it out in the back of my SUV, and so I drove home and drove into the garage and thought, well, now we have to get this into the house. That suddenly occurred to me. And, uh, well, I thought I can certainly slide it down off the deck of the trunk onto the garage floor, and I'm a macho man, you know, I can grapple with any kind of furniture and handle it. So I proceeded to do that, and the desk proceeded to almost knock me over as it was coming down out of the car, much heavier than I thought. It was made of hardwood of the day when they made things solid, and they made them to last. And uh, I kind of thought, told my wife later, I thought that desk was laughing at me in my presumption that I was strong enough to lift it. And with Carol's help, I realized this was not going to move into the house. It was more than she could handle or I could handle, either of us alone or even the two of us together. So I did what every senior pastor does. I called an associate pastor. And it happens that Pastor York has to nearly pass my home to go home every day. So I thought, let's get some younger muscle on the job. And we did that. And then we were able to move this desk into the house. But it wouldn't have happened without a willing load-bearer, to bolster me, to bolster my weakness, that piece of furniture would still be sitting in the garage behind my car like a pile of bricks laughing at me. Thank goodness we moved it. Today, in our thoughts on the subject, continuing yet one more week on after death what? We find Jesus Christ to be the only capable mover of a very heavy object that lodges itself in millions of lives, sooner or later in every life. I refer to the five-ton elephant that we call human grief, the way we respond to the death of someone that is close to us. Grief comes and it parks itself in the front room of our lives, and it seems to resist the best efforts at making it budge. Demographic studies I've read say that at any given time, about 10% of of a given population, 10% of you have in the last year experienced the death of someone quite close to you, someone close enough that you think about that death and you brood on that and, and grieving for that person is a part of almost daily life in some cases, almost hourly life. And if you're not in that 10%, then maybe you'll be in the 10% that have this experience in the next year. And if not in the next year, you can be sure your experience is coming somewhere. Because grief comes to all of us. And it sits there. And it weighs us down. And it puts its shadow over almost every thing in life. Now, there are many things perhaps that I could say as a pastoral counselor to talk about dealing with grief, but I'm not so much going down that path today as to ask what the Scripture says to teach us whether or not Christian faith really makes a difference in this area, in the aftermath 
of the death of another person who is important to us. Can we grieve better or uniquely or with greater strength in our lives because of Christ? It's Palm Sunday, and some always want the Palm Sunday sermon to be about Jesus entering Jerusalem, or if not that, at least about His passion and His cross. And you know that I've read a text that doesn't directly concern the cross. It's actually a scene from a short time before that. By the way, if you would follow a little further in John 11, John's testimony is, beginning at about verse 45 and following, that the the Pharisees or the high priests conspired together, and it was out of a rather direct response to the raising of Lazarus that they said, look, we've got to get this thing done. We've got to kill this man. So this is very much a part of the prelude to Holy Week. The scene we have is that of Jesus sobbing. Sobbing is not too strong a word. At the tomb of a dear friend. And of all occasions in the Bible for us to think about grief, here is Jesus himself grieving, and he's approaching a scene where those who knew and loved him would be grieving because his death would occur as the most prominent death in history, and hundreds and thousands would have to learn how do we respond to that. He died. We never expected that. And it was in learning that that they learned a great truth. I hope you'd see today that the Bible addresses grief not just descriptively by telling us a historical narrative of people grieving, but it also addresses it prescriptively in such a way that it tells us where our help can come from. God's Word shows us a Savior who bears our griefs, who carries our sorrows in Isaiah's words. Jesus Christ is the one who shoulders an impossible weight that we cannot carry by ourselves at all. First, I ask you to notice instances of grief expressed by people who had real biblical hope. Grief expressed by people who really had biblical hope. The writer C.S. Lewis wrote what might have been his most controversial book, just after the death of his wife. If you know Lewis's story, it was an unusual one. He was a bachelor most of his days, well past middle age. He met an American woman who was very different from him, Joy Gresham. Joy had cancer, even uh, known to, to have cancer, about the time that Lewis met her. But he decided to marry her, and they were very happy together. Their companionship was was nearly ideal despite different backgrounds, and yet the cancer came back, and after a rather short marriage relationship, Joy went home to the Lord. Lewis, as he was a man of letters, wrote a private journal of his grief. I don't know for certain if he intended to publish it when he first wrote it, but he did publish it against the advice of some friends who had read the manuscript, and they said, you can't publish this. It's too angry. It's too frank. You're showing, as a man of faith, complete perplexity about life in the wake of this loss. There needs to be more hope in this than is here. But C.S. Lewis went ahead and, and published a very frank appraisal of what it was to grieve for his wife. 
I, for one, am thankful that he did that. And, you know, if you read that and said, well, the man lost his faith, you'd be wrong. He didn't. Not at all. But it was a journal of a particular phase in his faith when he was groping around and was really boxing with God and asking the meaning of things. The reason I'm grateful for it is because C.S. Lewis there conforms to the picture I see of many prominent people in the Scripture who are people of faith, who grieved and grieved and cried with deep sorrow when these things came into their lives. Jacob, Genesis 37, how cruelly that man was treated by his own sons. Yes, maybe it was not such a good idea that he favored Joseph the way he did, but how cruel, you know. It was bad enough what the sons did to Joseph, selling him into slavery, then to come back to their own father and to say, Father, look, here's the coat we found out in the wilderness, torn and bloody. It looks like Joseph got killed and eaten by a tiger or something. And we read about Jacob with this lie given him by his own sons, mourning for many days, completely pierced by grief, and it says he could not be comforted. He was a man of faith. So was Job, a great man of faith. When he came to the catastrophe, you know that he had when all of his adult children and most of his property and fortune were wiped out in a a single stroke of events, and Job spent a whole book wailing in one way or another. Job 3.26, I have no peace, no quietness, no rest, only turmoil. Job 17, my eyes are grown dim with grief. My whole frame is but a shadow. My plans are shattered. So is the desire of my heart. I don't think anyone would say the prophet Jeremiah was not a man of great faith, very staunch faith. He actually wrote the only single book in Scripture that bears a a title of sorrow in the title of the book, Lamentations. And Jeremiah wasn't grieving for a person. He was grieving for a nation. In Lamentations 1, he writes, Is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see, is there any suffering like my suffering? The Lord The Lord, he said, has made me faint and desolate. The Lord has weighed me down with chains. And even when I call to him for help, he shuts out my prayer. That's essentially the same thing C.S. Lewis wrote that they told him he shouldn't write. Many psalms offer heavy scenes of grief. You can go down a whole list of them. Psalm 69 would be typical of David crying out, I sink in miry depths where there's no foothold for me. I've always been fascinated by Psalm 88. Its author is anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. It is the darkest of all the Psalms, and the darkness is just about unrelieved. The pessimism is unrelieved. It ends. You know, most of the Psalms, no matter how tough the journey through the Psalm and the Lord, the man may be contending with the Lord or saying, you know, it's not going well, Lord, you're not hearing me, and so on. There's some resolution at the end. Here's the resolution in the last sentence of Psalm 88. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me, and darkness is my closest friend. 
biblical people grieved. They grieved deeply without ceasing to be people of faith. In the New Testament church, we have the scene of Stephen, the martyr, being killed. Now, this was after the resurrection of Christ. You would say, oh, this must have been, you know, they must have uh, gathered around Stephen's grave and, and sang bright hallelujahs, for Easter had already occurred. Well, Acts reports it, Acts 8-2, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Godly people of faith. The Scripture shows us that God-centered faith that trusts God to be our Redeemer beyond the grave can and does express strong emotional sorrow and even go to the very brink of being overcome in the midst of such loss. And so we look at our text today, Jesus at the tomb of his special friend and frequent host, Lazarus and his sisters apparently provided a kind of sanctuary for Jesus in the little village of Bethany, a close walk to Jerusalem, a place where he could go and minister during the day, be buffeted by crowds, have everybody making demands, and then with a a short walk over a hill, be in a sanctuary where he could be by himself and be rested and refreshed. He wasn't near when Lazarus died for a reason we don't know why he died. But you do know that first Martha and then Mary greeted Jesus when he came, and in one way or another, they did it kindly. You know, I don't think they assaulted him with anger, but they both basically said the same thing when he came. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Just think if you were away and and some very dear friend of yours died, and you returned to town and immediately proceeded to the funeral home where you knew the close family would be gathered. And the first thing that happened when you came in the funeral home would be the family coming to you almost with a finger pointed in your face and said, this is your fault. (laughs) How would you feel? You're already sorrowing yourself, and the family blames you. And yet here is Jesus as we focus on him in verse 33 of John 11. And what I want you to see is how it affected him. The problem here is that the English language doesn't really cover it very well. I looked in the different translations and none of them really helps any more than the other. They all say something like, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And then it says Jesus wept. The passage is unique in that every commentator points out that the Greek verb is extremely rare, only used a couple other times in the New Testament, and it's very hard to translate because it's a verb that carries in it a note of anger and utter dismay. You might even think of it as like something like righteous indignation. And one of the images that is used for this verb when it occurs in other Greek writings outside the New Testament, the verb embrimisthai, is used to actually give the, the action of a, a warrior's horse about to ride into battle. Imagine a finely trained war horse, and, and on it sits the general who's about to ride it into a mass of of troops for a battle to happen, and the horse rears up and snorts 
just before it charges. That's the emotion that this verb is trying to convey. It's something that that doesn't have an easy English way to say it. Jesus was expressing here tremendous anguish and anger at what he was facing, at what he was seeing. He wasn't angry at Mary and Martha. He certainly wasn't angry at the other mourners who were there. He was angry at death. And in a sense, here he faces death as a vandal that has come in to try to wreck God's creation design for men and women and that has brought people into this terrible state. The author of life looks upon this and sees it as an obscenity, what the devil has done with death. And he trembles in his being and weeps and sobs. Some of you maybe can remember, as I do, back in the days of early Sunday school when you got memory verses, and I can remember we boys always tried to tell the teacher, can't we have John 11.35? Jesus wept. I don't even really want to use that as a joke today because Jesus weeping is no joke. This is the son of the highest heaven. Looking at the ultimate effect of human sin and looking at it with utter revulsion and being overcome with emotion. Grief is expressed by people with real biblical hope. But in the second place, we're led to face here what I call a twofold expectation by Christians who grieve in death or at the time of death. Two expectations that Christians should have. The first is this. It's really quite simple. That we, as believers in Christ, must acknowledge our own naturally constituted minds and emotions and bodies as we experience the tearful stages of human grief. In other words, Christianity does not bestow an anti-grief inoculation upon you. It's a very false thing that somehow, I think maybe we can blame the British for this, I'm not sure. Somewhere along the way, that British stiff upper lip got in and people said, well, that's the way Christians respond. We don't cry. We don't break down. We don't let it get to us. At least we don't let anybody see it. For that would perhaps cause us to be measured as somehow less than true believers if death could overcome our emotions. Well, you could take a basic psychology class, as many, many of you have done, and you would learn about the classic phases of grief. There's nothing all that theological about this. It's behavior that has been observed to be pretty consistent across all kinds of people in every nation, differing somewhat for different cultural groups, but the pattern is pretty consistent. And you can study these phases, and what I'm saying is that you as a Christian, regardless of national background, regardless of faith or culture, are going to experience these phases. First, the shock or the numbness, which is a little bit like God's anesthetic, I think, against the first onset of coming up against the death. And then a a wave of sorrow, sometimes next, severe depression. 
And then a, a string of players come into the picture called fear and guilt and anger, and they do a dance on you. Anger, that's interesting. You can even get angry at the person who died because they left you. That's the way we react sometimes. Then depression might set in for a while. And finally, acceptance and healing will gradually build. Well, you can get into more detail on those things, but my point is that any Christian who thinks they can bypass these kinds of reactions to death in their physical and emotional and mental makeup is kidding themselves. We don't worship that stoic ideal that says, fix your face. Don't let a tear fall. Don't let anybody see emotion get to you or it shows a weakness in your faith in Christ. How can that be so when Jesus groaned and wept and was overcome at beholding death and what it did? Do we think we're somehow in better control than he was? But then there's this second expectation that a Christian should have in bereavement or death. And that is after acknowledging the reality of your humanity and and how these things are going to happen, you can take your stand on 1 Thessalonians 4.13 and say, I do not grieve like the rest of mankind who has no hope. There is a difference. I've got a platform under my feet. I'm not like David said in those miry depths where my feet cannot touch the bottom. But rather... For Christians, it's, it's more like I was trying to think of the right comparison, and I, I thought of a swimmer a little ways offshore who's caught in a riptide or an undertow, and yet they're only in four or five feet of water. And yes, there's a current trying to pull you off your feet. However, there's also a bottom under your feet that you can contact. You're not in the miry depths with, with no possibility of a place to stand. And what I find over the years as a pastor, and of course it differs person to person, but time after time I have seen Christian people, some of them facing unbelievable sorrows. And it's not the stoic facing of it that I admire, but the fact that that people do go through realistically, and yet it seems almost as if the Lord brings them a quicker passage, or maybe not as tumultuous a passage through those different stages of grieving because they have a place to stand. Their grief did not cancel out the truth of what Jesus accomplished on their behalf in the cross and in the resurrection. And they looked to him and they said, look, I have a Savior and my Father put him to grief, that's what Isaiah said, on my behalf. And he, he's more than just a great sympathizer, you see. I'm not trying to sell you Jesus the sympathizer. He is that. And isn't it a great thing to know? You know, we don't worship the Greek ideal. The Greeks in their mythical gods said, oh, you know the greatest attribute of gods, the gods, is apatheia. They're removed. They are not touched by our infirmities. That's no attribute I wanted my God. And thank goodness the true God does not have that attribute. He comes into our griefs. He feels our griefs, but he more than feels them. He gets underneath them. 
and he lifted them in a historic way when he died for the effects of sin on his people and then rose from a tomb that he was in himself breaking through and breaking free so that his people have a historically grounded evidential faith on which to say to death, you may have me in your clutches for a while, but you can't have me permanently because my Christ has won. The Puritan William Gurnall wrote this line. He said, let your hope of heaven gradually master your natural fear of death. Why should you be afraid to die if you hope to live beyond death? Let your hope of heaven gradually master your fear of death. That's a very realistic statement. He says, I I know that you're naturally going to fear death. He doesn't say, don't fear it. You're a human being. I know you've got this fear, this, this terrible reaction. But let your hope of heaven be brought front and center and gradually master it. For a Christian's sorrow in time of death is undergirded and transformed by the solid ground of hope of eternal life in the name of Christ and in the action that Christ has taken on our behalf. And so we conclude in the third place, and I reach this conclusion that Jesus Christ is the grief carrier. Isaiah predicted it. He will carry your griefs. Who but Jesus has any better credentials of experience to do this? Isaiah 53.3 says he was the man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. And it goes on to say he was like someone so deep in his sorrow that he was like one from whom men hide their faces. I pictured the idea of, of Christ staggering under his cross, going to Calvary, so contorted with total pain that people were just almost experienced revulsion as they watched him. Who wants to be near somebody like that? All I can think of is the reaction that we all have to a dead animal laying at the side of the road. You see it, you can't help but see it, but you don't want to see it. You look away from it and you steer your car around it. Here's Jesus contorted by agony and sorrow, and, and we turned away. Isaiah said. But don't you see that the very extreme sorrows of death that he experienced are also the qualification that Jesus has for us to now turn toward him and trust him as the one with the best qualifications to lift us out of sorrow because he came through it by the power of God. I was on Facebook here a little while ago. I do look in on things like that. And uh, I think it was somebody, a young adult in this congregation, so if you recognize yourself, don't worry, I don't even remember who you were. But somebody was talking to a friend and saying, we've got to move a piano. From, from We've bought a piano, we're going to move it from one place to another place, and there are stairs involved. And, and the, the comment that was made from friend to friend was, well, I could call several friends and put my friends at risk and the piano at risk too by negotiating the stairway, or I could call a piano mover. I've called the piano mover. I said, good for you. You did the smart thing. You won't kill your friends, and you won't ruin your piano. In a real sense, Jesus Christ, the sorrow carrier, is the one who carries us in our sorrows. He's experienced. He's qualified. 
And you know, as I was dealing with this text this past week, I didn't find it in a commentary or anywhere else, but I just felt like the Lord impressed on me an image of something that came from sermons the associate pastors have had in the book of Judges recently. And I remembered Samson. Do you remember the scene of Samson in in Judges chapter 16? He was living foolishly. He was a man who was in some ways an example and a prototype of Christ, and yet he lived so badly that he also showed the terrible human weakness that he had. Well, one time, here was Samson, and he was in the city of Gaza, a Philistine city, and the Philistines said, we want to get Samson. We know he's going to spend the night in the city. We're going to post a guard on the gate, and he'll be coming out first thing in the morning. We'll have a guard ready at the gate to take him when he comes. I don't know whether Samson was given that information or what exactly, but Samson got up in the middle of the night. I don't know the guard was probably sleeping if they were there at all. And Samson not only got out of Gaza, the Word of God says he did a marvelous thing. Quote, he took hold of the doors of the city gate together with the two posts and tore them loose, bars and all. And then Judges describes how he didn't just take them and drop them on the ground there. He carried them away, all the way to a hill that overlooked Horeb. It was as if it wasn't enough to to mock their security. He had to completely take it off out of sight. Well, all I could think about was Jesus Christ taking the gates off the city of death. The prison house that grief tries to build around you when you are mourning for someone has no effectual door on it to keep you in. Christ took the door away. And the place where the world and the enemy of our souls would imprison us in despair is an open gate because of Jesus. If you're grieving for somebody today, believe me, I take that very seriously. Jesus takes it seriously. He groaned. He wept at the devastation that death brings into a life. He knows your situation. He died for your situation. Our high priest in heaven is one who is completely sensitized to our infirmities, but he's more than just a sympathizer. He's the gate smasher. He's the one who carries away the gates of sorrow. Psalm 30 has a promise that Christians of all people should best understand when it says, weeping may endure for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And I leave you this as a final promise, and it's very much one of Scripture's final promises from the book of Revelation. 21, verse 4. It's a promise given to a specific group of people. It is given to those who belong to Christ by faith, who are His new creations, who will be with God in the new heavens and new earth that we have talked about in past weeks, for that's what Revelation 21 is about. And then there's that description there of what it will be like to be with God in that situation. I read it at gravesides all the time. God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things will have passed away. 
Christian, that's addressed to you. And I tell you, when it is God, the all-powerful God who in Jesus Christ took him to his cross and through his resurrection, when it is God who dries your tears, they will stay dry. Amen. Our Father, I pray for those who grieve today. In our midst are some for whom it's only been weeks or months, and the wound is fresh, and it's very sore, and each day has hard coping and new decisions and an ache of loneliness. But, Father, we thank you that these events that we celebrate in Holy Week, the cross of your Son and his open tomb, bring us one who is strong against this. And so may his strength lift up those who are bowed low. May his power carry our sorrows until they are far from us and we need not be burdened by them anymore. To his honor and praise, amen.